Well, we have got a treat for you today. Uh, a number of years ago, we, uh, we ran across, uh, I don't even know how it happened. We, we made a connection with a, a church in West Virginia called Horizons Church. And we're an independent church, but we have some great relationships with some different churches. And one of those is Horizons, and one of their pastors is here today. And uh, about, um, I got I guess two and a half years ago, he came and he began to meet with our staff one day a week and just pour into our staff. And the agreement was, is that we were going to do that for six months. And I think we did it for two years <laughs> uh, because it was that good and it made such a difference in our lives. And he and his wife, Jody are with us today and they are just, they've become great friends to us. And he rides a motorcycle, so you know he's super cool. Would you welcome Pastor Steve Felder? He's going to come and minister to us today. Well, good morning. Hey, this first time I've been uh, here to, to, in one of your worship services, I was with you when you paid off this building. That was a class B miracle, right? And it's stuff like that. It's that kind of discipleship, that kind of generosity that allows you to do ministry like you're just about to step into to be able to give that kind of money to people in need. And when you uh, don't have to pay for masonry, you can invest it in ministry. So praise God for that. Anybody here that's a mechanic? Anybody here who works on stuff, fixes stuff? I don't know. I can't see anybody. If you're here, I just want to, I have mad, I have mad respect for you. I, I spent all day yesterday working on a lawnmower and, uh, so I had to go into prayer and sanctify and re-sanctify myself after that. Um, that was a, uh, that, those are, that's a, I'm glad God called me to pastor, you know. But thank God for, for guys who know how to do that stuff. Well, we're in, the, you're in a series that's um, dealing with um, how, to, how to keep your, your relationships and marriage and families together. And uh, Pastor Dave asked me if I'd speak on one of those topics, and so today we're going to talk about uh, how to have a good fight, and um, I want to talk to you about hijacking the story, just one piece of that. So uh, let's just pray. Father, thank you. Help us now as we look into this very important message, uh, a part of a big part of our lives, because we all have to deal with it. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, about 15 years ago when I came to Horizons Church, we we needed some signage uh, that would help our guests find our welcome center. And so I contacted a, a company that sold signs, and they sold these, these letters that attach right to the wall. And I ordered a few of those, different sizes and styles, so we could tell which one really would work best over our welcome center. And then I pulled in three of our staff, Dwayne Adams and, and uh, Yvonne Shelberg and a guy named Ron Ash. And I said, you know, I need you to kind of weigh in and give me your opinion of what letters look best. And in the end, uh, Dwayne and uh, Yvonne and I, we all thought that the, these large metal letters, we had two options. We could do large metal letters. They cost a little more, but we thought those looked better. The other option was some smaller plastic letters that cost a little less. And uh, Ron Ash thought those were the better choice. So it was kind of three to one. And uh, so I said, look, it's, it's uh, it's not a unanimous choice, but uh, I think we're going to go with those large metal letters, and uh, it's worth the extra expense. And um, Ron Ash was our, our financial guy at the time, and he was the guy that liked the smaller plastic, less expensive letters. 
And so I said, uh, Ron, why don't you go ahead and just order those for us and cut the check since you're the financial guy. And, he, and so we, I left it there. About 10 days later, Yvonne came walking into my room with a box in her hand and kind of an odd look on her face. And she said, didn't we, didn't we order the large metal letters that even we thought they were worth the extra expense? I said, yes, we did. And she says, well, that, that's not what we got. And uh, I, I said, it's not. And she handed me the box. I looked inside the box, and it was the small plastic letters that Ron wanted, not the large metal letters that Dwayne and Yvonne and I had chosen. Now, just as a side note, I want to let you know that I called Ron to ask him if it was okay with him if I shared this story, and he gave me the green light. I told him in telling the story I might take his name in vain, you know. Um, but he said, hey, I'm a, I'm a sports official. People take my name in vain all the time, so you go ahead and tell the story. So, well, that disclaimer, let me say that Ron is an expert in pinching pennies. Now, I don't want to say that Ron's cheap, but Ron's cheap. You know. <laughs> um, so um, when I looked in that box and I, and I saw a, a bunch of small plastic letters that cost a little bit less rather than those large metal letters that cost a little bit more, something inside of me just snapped in this, I don't know, I started channeling some inner diva that was waving her finger and saying, oh, no, you didn't, you know. <laughs> um, my eyes narrowed, my breathing got shallow, my blood pressure shot up, and Yvonne began to slowly back out of the room because she could see that just by looking at me that I was getting more and more upset by the moment. And I wasn't mad. I wasn't upset with the sign company for sending us the wrong, the wrong, uh, the wrong letters. No, I was upset with Ron because... In about 30 seconds, my mind hijacked this, this story, that, and, and, and I gave that, those, those plastic letters a very negative interpretation. The story I came up with had a real negative interpretation. Within seconds, I had arrested Ron in my mind. I had prosecuted him to the fullest extent of the law. I had found him guilty of disrespecting me and doing an end run around me just to save a few lousy bucks. And now in the courtroom of my mind, all was left for me to do was to hunt Ron down, you know, and then put him on a rack until he confessed his treachery. And once he did, would meet out swift and, and decisive judgment, hide the body somewhere where nobody could find it, <laughs> and then go find another financial guy, you know. That was the plan. Now, somewhere between Yvonne backing out of the room and me getting up to go hunt down Ron, God spoke to me and said, Steve, you better sit down. And think about this before you speak. And so I sat down in my chair and I asked myself, could there be another explanation for getting the small plastic letters that Ron wanted rather than the large metal letters that the rest of us chose? Could that be? Could it be that Ron had acted out of goodwill, not out of ill will? Could it be, could it be that Ron is not a villain and I'm not a victim? Because somehow, somehow, an honest mistake has been made. I seriously doubted it, but could it be? I remember sitting in my office and saying to myself, you know, the reality is I don't know why Ron ordered the plastic letters when I asked him to order the metal ones, but I'm going to find out. And so as soon as those words came out of my mouth, the pressure inside of me just went and it dropped. The courtroom in my mind was adjourned and my emotions went from being angry and condemning to being quiet and neutral. 
You know, I didn't go Pollyanna and say, oh, Ron would never do something like that. And I didn't go Judge Roy Bean, you know, try and find him guilty and hang him. All I did was I suspended judgment. I just hit the pause button and said, the reality is, I don't know what happened. And so court is adjourned until I find out. When I saw Ron a few minutes later, I didn't make any accusations. I just walked up to him and said, hey, Ron, those letters came in for the Welcome Center today. Educate me on how we ended up with uh, pl the plastic letters rather than the metal ones. And Ron looked at me and says, well, that's what everybody wanted. And I said, no, no, that, actually, you're the only person who wanted them. The rest of us wanted the, the larger metal letters. He goes, oh, no, no, you can go talk to Dwayne, Yvonne. I'm sure I'm right. And I said, brother, I've already talked to Yvonne and you were Dwayne. And they said they wanted the large plastic or the large metal letters. So I looked at Ron and I said, well, it seems to me that a mistake was made. So here's what I'm, I'd like you to do. I'd like you to order those large metal letters for the Welcome Center. And then I'd like you to, if you would, find a place to use these smaller plastic letters somewhere else in the church or someplace else so we don't waste $360. I said, that sound fair? He said, oh, okay, I agree to that. And so our large metal letters came a few days later, and one of our video campuses was really excited to re some, receive some very nice plastic letters. You know, um, Now, that, that whole episode could have ended very badly. My relationship with Ron could have been permanently damaged. And if I had run with that negative story that, that just immediately popped into my mind, that would have been really fatal to my relationship with Ron. All the dots connected in my mind, my initial story made perfect sense to me. I was a victim. Ron was the villain. He was a man of ill will who had intentionally disrespected me, did end run around me, and all of that just to save a few lousy bucks. That was a story in my mind, but there was just one problem. I didn't know if any part of that negative story that I had concocted in my mind was actually true. It felt true. It made sense to me. But the reality was, I didn't know if any part of that story was actually really true. And therein lies the problem of something called negative interpretation. We expect, we expect metal letters, and we get plastic ones. And rather than hitting the pause button, suspending judgment, go and find out what really happened, we hijack the story, we give that story a very negative interpretation, and then we start making accusations. And when we do that again and again and again, we ruin the most important relationships in our life because negative interpretation is inherently disrespectful and terribly exasperating when you're on the receiving end of it. And it is lethal, absolutely lethal, to your most cherished relationships. Now, now you know, you know that conflict is inevitable, right? You're in the relationships with, with broken people, and conflict is inevitable. But how you fight, how I fight, that's a choice. I can have good fights, or I can have bad fights, and the difference between a good fight and a bad fight is how I fight. You know, a guy named Scott Stanley and a team of researchers did a study of 150 different couples, some of them married, some of them dating, and he, he extended that, that research for 13 years. He followed these people for 13 years. And the goal of that study was to determine the number one predictor, the best predictor, number one best predictor of whether relationships would succeed or fail. And after studying those 300 people in 150 different relationships, 
For 13 years, Stanley's team discovered that the most accurate predictor of whether, whether relationships would succeed or fail was not if they fight, but how they fight. In fact, using what he learned with those 300 people, Stanley and his team were able to go on and predict with stunning accuracy. I'm talking over 95, almost 98% accuracy. When they looked at other couples, they could predict with stunning accuracy which relationships would succeed or which would fail simply by watching how they fought for less than half an hour. Because there are certain tactics in fighting that are absolutely lethal to any relationship. And if you use them, it doesn't matter how many compliments you give to offset them. It doesn't matter how many vacations you take to make things right. It doesn't matter how many gifts or how many bonuses you shower on the person that you've offended. If you use these lethal tactics when you fight, the wheels will fall off of your relationships. The glue that keeps them together will fail and your most cherished relationships will die. Now, these, there are four of these lethal tactics, and you can remember those, these four tactics by the word wine, W-I-N-E, and I'm going to give you a whole new wine list, all right? W-I-N-E, each one of those, stands, those letters stands for one of these lethal fighting tactics. I'm going to give you a brief overview, just a brief overview of these four tactics, and then we're going to unpack one that's particularly lethal and one that we're kind of nose blind to. We kind of don't see it very clearly unless it's pointed out. So we're going to spend a little more time on that. Here's the four. They spell out the word wine. Withdrawing, W is withdrawing. By that I mean we end a fight by withdrawing from the conflict without resolving it. We walk away, you know, we walk out of the room, we slam the door and we say, fine, have it your way. And we leave the, com we leave the, the conflict. Or we just stare off into space, fold our arms and, uh, you know, withdraw in silence to control the fight. Either one of those are withdrawing. I, W-I, I is invalidating. And invalidation is a subtle or a blatant put down. It can come as an insult. Of course you think like that. You're a man. Or it can uh, come as a comparison. You're just as crazy as your mother. <laughs> or it can come with just a dismissive eye roll that says, oh, really? And you know, like, that's stupid, talk to the hand, you know, that kind of thing. Often it shows up in name-calling and expletives, but invalidations try to win the argument by hitting below the belt. And it, we can laugh and say, ah, oh, I was just kidding, you know, I was just kidding, but when you use invalidations to win an argument or make a point, your words are laced with contempt, and contempt kills relationships. So W-I-N, N is negative interpretation. This is one we don't know, we don't really have a lot of, we do it a lot, but we don't really think about it a lot. Negative interpretation, we're going we're gonna to unpack that one today, and so I'll come back to that in a little bit. N is negative interpretation. E, W-I-N-E, E is escalation. In escalation, we try to win by out-hurting the other person. We just keep upping the antes of our insults, up the antes of our put-downs, up the antes of our threats, up the antes of our negative interpretation until the other person cries uncle and taps out. Now, those are the four fighting tactics that will destroy your marriage, it'll destroy your dating life, it'll destroy your relationship with your kids, with your employees, with your coworkers, with your friends. It'll destroy any relationship that you use them in. And we can't unpack all four of those lethal tactics 
today, but so we're just going to focus on negative interpretation. Now, if you're not sure what a negative interpretation is, I'm going to show you two examples of it in the Bible. But the bottom line of negative interpretation is this. When we use it, when we're, when we're the negative interpreter, when we're doing it to somebody else, we turn the positive statement or action of another person into, we take that and we turn it into an insult or personal offense against us. And then we accuse the other person of intentionally trying to hurt us. Now let me show you what that might sound like in a phone call between an insecure guy who calls his girlfriend at work. The guy says, hey, 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 I tried to call you at 2 o'clock, but you didn't pick up. Girlfriend says, yeah, my, my boss called an unexpected meeting and it lasted until 3. Oh, I say, you can drop everything and run to a meeting for your boss, but you can't return a simple phone call for me. Nice. Negative interpretation punctuated by an invalidation. Girlfriend says, it was just a meeting. You do the same thing with your boss calls an unexpected meeting. You know, an appeal to fairness. Boyfriend responds, don't turn this around and make this about me. You're the one that's got a thing for your boss. Oh, now he's escalated with another negative interpretation, even more severe. So how does she respond? You're such a child. Take the pacifier out of your mouth and grow up. Oh, there is an invalidation. So how does he respond? The only reason you're so touchy about this is because you know I'm right. Maybe I should call your boss's wife and tell her what the two of you are up to. Now he's pushed that negative, he escalated it one more time, puts the negative interpretation up another notch. How does she respond? You're impossible. Click, and she withdraws. Now, in the course of that brief conversation, this insecure young man went from accusing his girlfriend of putting her boss before him, then to having a crush on them, and having, then having an affair with her boss, and all that is based on a girlfriend missing his 2 o'clock phone call. A few more calls like that, this young man won't have to worry about what his girlfriend's doing at work because he won't have one. But negative interpretations, see, these don't just show up in insecure men. They also show up in insecure women, insecure parents, insecure friends, insecure marriage partners, insecure bosses, insecure workers. They even show up, negative interpretation even shows up in insecure politicians. We're going to see that today in our Bible passages. But whenever, whenever you're in the receiving end that's coming at you, you're in the receiving end of a negative interpretation, same thing always happens. Your positive words or actions are inexplicably hijacked. And then they're turned around and they're made into a negative statement about the other person, which you never intended, and then you're accused of intentionally trying to hurt them. And with that, uh, well, that happens. Negative interpretation destroys relationships. Very destructive. Because negative interpretations turn my positive statements about life, whether it's in word or deed, they take my positive statements about life and turn it into a negative statement about you. And it's just, you're like, what just happened? Let me show you how this tactic played out in a relationship between King Saul, first king of Israel, and, one of, and his very best warrior, a young man named David. Now, David was in, in, in and out of King Saul's court as a boy. He was on, in there as a musician, then as his armor bearer. But when he was about 17, um, David killed a nine-foot nine giant who was taunting, the, taunting Israel with a sling and a stone down in the valley of Elah. And when Goliath fell, David's star began to rise. And King Saul 
uh, pulled David into his inner court, made him one of a, a part of his inner circle. And he began to send David out on raids, and he found out that David was an absolutely fearless warrior. He won skirmish after skirmish and battle after battle. And King Saul couldn't believe his, his good fortune. I mean, he had to be the luckiest king in the Middle East. I mean, here's this guy, this ringer, this fearless warrior who just lands in his lap that none of his adversaries have a clue on how to defeat. And so he gives David this high rank in his army. And the Bible says that David, or Saul's son, Jonathan, he was pleased with that promotion. So were the people, and so were the, the soldiers or the, the officers in, in Saul's army. They, they, they admired David's courage and leadership. But one day, as David and his army were reentering the capital after yet another, another uh, notch in his belt, everything changed. Because as, the, as a group of women went out and met them and brought David and his men, ushered them into the city, they began to sing a new ditty, a new song that they had come up with, and they wanted to try it out and see how it worked. And so when, uh, when, when this song was, was extolled and uh, ex the, it lauded the exploits of King Saul and his, his key warrior, David, and when Saul heard the lyrics of this song, he hijacked the positive intent of the singers, turned it into their positive statements about him and David into a personal insult, and then accused David of plotting to overthrow him and take his throne. The Bible says it like this. As they, that's the women, as they danced, they sang. And what did they sing? These 11 words. Saul is slain as thousands and David is tens of thousands. And Saul was very angry. The refrain galled him. This is what's going on in his head. This is the negative interpretation. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me only with thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that day forward, the relationship was severed, was cracked, and he went after David for years trying to kill him and eliminate him. Now, in the time that it takes to sing 11 words, just 11 words, King Saul went from believing that he was the luckiest guy in the Middle East to have a guy like David on his team to being convinced that the people loved David more than they loved him and that David was a man of ill will who was plotting to overthrow him and take his crown. But what had changed? What had actually changed? What proof did uh, Saul have that this accusation was, was true? What indication was there that David was plotting <clears throat> to overthrow King Saul and take his throne? Answer, none. I mean, David was, didn't change. He just kept winning battles for the king. The people didn't change. They loved King Saul, and they loved his warrior David. And his officers didn't change. They still swore their allegiance to the king. The only thing that changed was the negative story that was concocted in Saul's head. The only thing that changed was that Saul took the positive statements of these women and the faithful service of David and turned them into negative statements about himself and then about David, he did, Saul hijacked the story and made everything about him. And then he accused David of plotting an insurrection against him. Now, here's how that kind of a negative interpretation might sound between a husband and a wife when a husband comes home from work a little late. Walks in, the wife says, how was your day? Husband says, oh, it was great. I stayed over, finished that proposal I've been working on. Client loved it. If this thing works out like I think it's going to, it's going to be a big bonus for us at the end of the month. Wife says, I see. So I guess I'm not important to you having a great day. 
What? That's not what I meant. Well, it's what you said. You said you had a great day without me. Well, no, I didn't. You asked me a simple question, and I gave you a simple answer. How did this become about you? Exactly. Nothing is ever about me in your life. And that's the problem. Husband says, there's no talking to you when you're like this. I'm going to go mow the lawn. And he withdraws. Do you feel that? Do you feel how quickly this normal conversation got hijacked by a negative interpretation? How it felt like conversational jujitsu? You know, one moment the conversation is going in a positive direction, the next moment the whole thing flips around, becomes negative, and somehow, somehow you're being accused of some horrible crime. The whole thing makes no sense to the person on the receiving end, but in some twisted way, it makes perfect sense to the person who's saying it. And that's why negative interpretation is so lethal to a relationship. Because it is exasperating to be accused of an offense in which the evidence for that offense is totally in the mind of the one who's accusing you. How do you defend yourself against that? There is no defense against it. And that brings us to our next point. You know, negative interpretation, they're exasperating because in the mind of the accuser, the accusation is the evidence. The accusation is the evidence. If someone accuses of an, of an offense, there's normally an objective, there's some objective evidence to prove that we are either guilty or innocent of the accusation. For example, if uh, a guy named Jeremy comes into his professor's, his professor says, come in here, Jeremy. He comes into his office and says, why am I here? Professor says, well, it looks to me like you cheated on the last exam. He says, how'd you get that? He says, well, you sit right beside of Tom, and your answers were exactly the same as Tom's. And he said, well, we read the same textbook, came to the same lectures. Why wouldn't they be the same? Professor said, well, that's true, Jeremy, but on question number eight, when I ask, what is the Pythagorean theorem? Tom answered, I don't know. And you answered, I don't either. <laughs> See, now that's real evidence. That's how real accusations work. There's real objective evidence that he did something wrong. But in negative interpretation, all the evidence is in the mind of the accuser, which means for the accuser, the accusation is the evidence. I don't need anything more. The accusation is true simply because I imagined it's true. And that's why negative interpretations are so lethal. The facts don't matter because the accusation is the evidence. So let me show you how this played out in the life of another king, King Hanun, 2 Samuel chapter 10. Hanun's daddy died. He was king of the Ammonites. When he died, his son, Hanun, Hanun his son, became king. And King David and Hanun's father had been friends for a very long time. And so um, when his friend died, David sent an official delegation to the state funeral to express his sympathy to Hanun and to the Ammonites. At first, Hanun's very grateful that David is honored, King David's honoring his father. But then as some of his advisors began whispering in his ear and uh, negatively interpreting um, what was going on, and Hanun uh, believed what they said, and this is what they said, and this is what Hanun did when he became a negative interpreter. They said to him, do you think David is honoring your father by sending men to you to express sympathy? Hasn't David sent them to you to explore the city, spy it out, and overthrow it? And Hanun became a negative interpreter right there, and this is what he did. So Hanun seized David's men, shaved off half of each man's beard, cut off their garments in the middle of their buttocks, and sent them home. Now there's a good plan. What could go wrong with that, right? 
But what evidence did Hanun have that David's men were there on a covert mission to spy out the city, overthrow them, and take away their, their throne? Answer, none. All the evidence was in the mind of Hanun and in the mind of his advisors, and it didn't matter what David's men said to proclaim their innocence because the only evidence that Hanun believed was the accusations that he had created in his own mind because the accusation is the evidence. And as a result, Hanun did a very foolish thing and destroyed the goodwill that had between David and Ammonites had been built up for years. What Hanun feared was that David would attack him, take over his kingdom, seize his throne. And so to keep that imagined threat from happening, Hanun rounded up David's men, humiliated them in public, and sent them home with half a beard and their backsides exposed. So guess what happened? His mistreatment of David's funeral delegation caused the very thing to happen to Hanun that he feared the most. David declared war on the Ammonites, defeated them, and what did he take? Hanun's crown. And there's the terrible irony, the terrible tragedy of negative interpretation. When we use this lethal tactic to try to win an argument, we very often inadvertently cause the thing we fear the most to happen to us. So how do we stop being negative interpreters? How do we stop doing this? Well, I think it starts, number one, by admitting that we're doing it. If you argue to keep it, you get to keep it. Then after you do that, if you admit that you're doing it, then you have to do two things. Suspend judgment, that happens inside yourself, and assume goodwill in the other person. Now, what do I mean by that? Suspend judgment, I mean we have to hit the pause button and admit to ourselves that the story bouncing around in our head is not a fact. It's just an accusation. It's just a story that we've made up, and we don't know if it's true or false. And by assuming goodwill, what I mean is that we have to assume that the person standing in front of us is acting out of goodwill and is not trying to hurt us until there's real, not imagined, real evidence to the contrary. And remember, accusations are not evidence. Jesus said it like this, I send you out as sheep amongst wolves. Therefore, be shrewd as serpents and harmless as doves. Now, we live in a world where there's both wolves and sheep. There are people of goodwill we can trust. There's people of ill will that we can't. And we have to sort out which one is which. We can't just assume everybody's a sheep. No one's going to try to hurt us. We must be shrewd as a serpent. We must recognize a wolf when there's real evidence that the person's behaving like a wolf. And then we have to protect ourselves. But we can't assume everyone's a wolf and out to hurt us. Jesus said you have to be harmless as a dove. That is, we must assume that the person standing in front of us is a person of goodwill until they objectively prove otherwise. Now, if Jesus expects us to treat a stranger like that, certainly expects us to do that for our mates, for our kids, for our coworkers, for our friends, right? So the good news is this. The good news is this. You don't have to be a negative interpreter. But it's up to you to stop. No one can stop you. There's no way of arguing against this. That's why it's so frustrating, why it's so lethal. You have to stop. No one can do it for you. Your mate can't love you enough to get you to stop. Your kids, your boss, your friends, they can't live perfect enough to never trigger you. Won't happen. You have to hit the pause button. You have to suspend judgment. You have to assume the person standing in front of you is a person of ill will who is not trying to hurt you until proven otherwise. You have to vet the stories that are bouncing around in your head. And, but the good news is, I know you can do this. 
How do I know? Because the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Which means simply that by you can that you can stop being a negative interpreter if you'll listen to the Holy Spirit and let him help you stop being a negative interpreter. If you do these simple things, you can stop. So why don't you just determine today? Why don't you determine that as much as depends upon you, you can't determine everybody else, much as depends on you, you're going you're gonna to stop having bad fights and you're going to start having good fights because how you fight is the number one predictor of whether your most cherished relationships are going to succeed or fail. So let's stop withdrawing. Let's stop invalidating. Let's stop being a negative interpreter. Let's stop escalating the disrespect because that's where the pay dirt is. It's in stopping that that's where the pay dirt is. taking off before you take off these clothes before you put on these. Take them off. That's where the pay dirt is. Get rid of those lethal tactics and your fights will bring you closer together rather than tearing you apart. You say, well, Pastor Steve, I don't know where to start. Let me suggest you start with negative interpretation. Root it out of your life. And I guarantee you, if you will, your relationships will last. And you know what? Your friends, your kids, your mate, your boss, your co your workers, they'll all rise up and call you blessed because they're just waiting for you to stop. They really want you to. So why don't you just determine today to stop doing it? All right? Ask God to help you. If you need help, other help, go to a counselor intervene on it. It'll save your relationships. Good for you. Good for your relationships. All right? Thank you for a chance to be with you, Pastor Dave. Come on, let him know you appreciate that message today. I'll never forget one time my wife and I, we don't fight, but we have what we call intense moments of fellowship. And one time we were having an intense moment of fellowship and she looked at me with tears in her eyes and she said, why do you always assume the worst about me? And I'm telling you, it was like a punch to the gut. I, I was the champion of writing a very sad story. And because I'm a musician, I would make it a song in my mind, in negatively interpreting everything I was, I was doing with her. And I'll never forget that day. I had to repent. Anyone else ever make up some really sad stories within yourself? Four of us. That's awesome. That's awesome. Hey, um, this series, uh, we got a lot of great feedback from last week, and I know I know God is speaking to our hearts today about this. He wants, he wants our relationships to be blessed. He wants our families to be strong. But we, we got to get some of these communication uh, tools and, and add them to our tool belt and, and, and improve and start operating in the fruit of the Spirit where we have that kindness and that goodness and that gentleness and that self-control. And, of course, we're using the Bible. We always do every week as our, as our main text. But we've also got a, a great supplemental resource in our resource center, which is just the counter right out there in front. And it's called From This Day Forward. It's a book by the same name as we're doing the series by Pastor Craig and Amy Groeschel from Life Church. It is a simple read. We often use it in our pre-marriage counseling, but it is great for couples who've been married for 30 years. You can learn something from it. So over the course of this next month or so, if you're looking to go a little deeper, you want something to supplement what we're doing on Sundays, I would encourage you to pick up that book out there. Um, all right, why don't we stand together? 
And I'm going to ask Christian Garlitz to close us in prayer today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just want to thank you again for all the, the second chances, the, the third chances, the, the one millionth chances that we have with you, Lord Jesus. And Lord, you know more than anyone how, how silly we are sometimes, how, how easily we can open our mouths and make things worse instead of better. But Lord, I pray that you would give us, give us a second chance with our relationships today. God, things that we've messed up, feelings that we've hurt, pains that we've carried from whenever our feelings were hurt. Jesus, you're the master of non-retaliation, taking offense and absorbing it and offering forgiveness instead of another offense. So, God, would you work in us and through us. Holy Spirit, fill us up again and again until we really reflect you to an entire world and even just to our small circle of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Love you, family. Be blessed. We'll see you next week.